Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Each week we explore the beliefs shaping our world. Every day it seems someone new and noteworthy has a podcast, but finding good ones can be hard. So I pay attention to the awards. And earlier this year, the American Academy of Religion recognized a podcast hosted by Blair Hodges. The judges highlighted the nuance of the conversations and the ways he dives into exploring ideas and practices that may be a little off, well, the beaten path. If you follow Mormon scholars, you may recognize his voice. For eight years, Hodges was the host of the Maxwell Institute podcast, which is affiliated with Brigham Young University in Utah. It was a role he grew into, but after a while, he felt constrained by the mission, so he decided to go independent. With a background in communications and religious studies, in 2021, he launched Fireside with Blair Hodges. While he may have lost the platform that a large university offers, he found editorial freedom and an ability to lean into his curious nature and comfort having conversations with different people about different religious beliefs. It's something he discovered knocking on doors as a Mormon missionary. Uh, My own religious background is Mormonism. So I was born into a family that practices Mormonism, and I served uh, a a mission for the LDS Church, which was two years of when I was 19 going out uh, to Wisconsin and knocking on doors and talking to people about religion and uh, felt like I had something to deliver. And as a missionary, the more people I interacted with, the more I became curious about other people's beliefs. At first, as a way to make connections and introduce more of my own beliefs, but increasingly, uh, I was interested in other people's religions for their own sake. So that really sparked it. So I've I've grown up in a religion. I, I'm a sort of religious-ish type person, even still, uh, and that's that's kind of my background. Do you still identify as practicing religious-ish? I kind of get, I, but I don't know what that means. Yeah, so in Mormonism, to be active in the church means to like attend church each week, to have a calling, which means you serve in some sort of capacity in your congregation, whether it be a teacher or a youth director or things like that. Um, and so activity in Mormonism is pretty intensive. And I'm in and out of that at this point. My family doesn't practice. My partner and my two kids are not practicing Mormon. And so I would say I'm sort of off and on, but I'm a fundamentally Mormon person my own ambivalence toward my religion is rooted in differences I have over uh, social issues primarily. And so um, if it weren't for for that, I think I would be a lot more active in the church. But differences politically, differences socially, when it comes to some of my morals and values, uh, you know, make it difficult to engage every week. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I, I don't think it's easy to necessarily talk about that ambivalence or that unease. I feel like I, at least in this 
role that I have here from a lot of folks who are deeply rooted in their tradition, or they are deeply out of their tradition, I have either discovered mm. something else or they have rejected and deconstructed. I wonder if you feel like you are unique, or do you feel like there are more folks like you within your tradition? Mm. That's an interesting question. I I couldn't quantify it, but I think you've identified something really important here, which is a lot of what we hear on radio, through podcasting, are more polarized takes. The strong believers, the people who have been injured and damaged by religion and have strong convictions and feel post-religious, the people who are defensive about religion and have been uplifted by religion and who are apologetic for religion – And yeah, I think there's a number of people kind of in this middle territory. And, you know, we don't have, there's not a church of us or anything like that. So there's nothing to really organize around. But I think my my personal experience in this liminal space is reflected in the podcast that I produce, which is I wanted to make something that a lot of people could listen to, people who have been hurt by religion or feel convicted to have left a religion, uh, and also people who are still engaged with their religion. And that's a tall order, but I think it's possible to like have conversations that can actually transcend those differences and find something shared between people on different sides of, of the aisle, so to speak. So I, I think there's a lot of people that it could appeal to, uh, especially now that, you know, Distrust in institutional religions is is definitely on the rise, and I think there is a growing number of people who have a religious or spiritual impulse, but don't have a community or organization that they can channel that through. Oh, I think that is really a great description of so many people in not just in our country, but in the world. I think that Mm -hmm. the growing numbers of folks who are searching for a space to talk about and bring their spirituality, their beliefs, their morality into their daily lives, but are not necessarily willing to suspend their doubt or their criticisms of abuses of power is something that Mm -hmm. um, I absolutely have been hearing a lot about. So what was the spark for Fireside Chat? What happened in your life that you decided, I need to do this, I need to have more conversations? Yeah, so I actually started out with my first kind of big show was at Brigham Young University, which is a, it's a Mormon institution. Uh, it's owned and operated by the church. And I worked there for eight years, and I started a podcast there called the Maxwell Institute Podcast. And that's a show where I interviewed scholars of a lot of different religious traditions uh, who are approaching religion from a scholarly perspective, but one that's fairly faith-promoting. Um, if if not apologetic. And I was able to interview some of the biggest figures in biblical studies, like James Kugel um, and Amy Jill Levine and these type of folks. And it was, it was really rewarding, but working for the church institution itself just increasingly conflicted with my personal views on things like gay marriage, same-sex marriage, things like trans rights, um, women's issues and feminism. And so, I felt increasingly out of place in that environment. And throughout the course of my time there, there were a number of books that came up that's like, oh, I'd love to interview that person, but I don't think it would work in a BYU environment. And so I would kind of put them in my back pocket. So when I decided to leave BYU and uh, take a different position, I had kind of this collection of books of these people that I had always wanted to talk to. And so 
season one of Fireside was like the greatest hits of people that I didn't have the chance to interview because I was at a conservative religious institution. Mm. That answered a question that I was going to ask you, which is in looking through some of the interviews and conversations, I was struck by your kind of engaging with folks who were on the margins, questioning institutions, and they're bringing in voices that we don't often hear in institutions that are seeking to explore or lift up the values of different religious traditions. You know, the trans theologian, for example, is something that you're not going to hear in a lot of places. As you set out to do this, what was the response? The people that I reached out to loved the idea, and I was able to point to my track record with the Maxwell Institute podcast. It, It had won awards. You know, I had a really good number of subscribers. It was a big show. And so I could point to that as I was reaching out for guests and say, here's what I'm trying to do. And everyone was really excited about what I described, and I'm grateful that they took a chance on a new show. And then building an audience, you know, I was just connecting with people who had known my previous work, and I don't reach anywhere near what I was reaching through an institutional platform. Um, Being an independent podcaster is a bigger challenge, but, uh, you know, shows travel by word of mouth. People recommend this stuff to their friends. The guests were excited to talk about the things I was talking about. The listeners were excited to hear about it. And most of all, since I was leaving the Academy at that point, I wanted to stay connected with some of the most incredible people that I've known in my life. I knew leaving the Academy would be difficult because I would feel like I was missing these incredible conversations. And so doing Fireside with Blair Hodges has let me stay plugged in and stay connected to a lot of just like incredible people. So it's, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Being at BYU and being in this position in which you are seeing these ideas percolate in the academy, but you're now not in the academy, why do you think public voices, public theologians have such a hard time talking to and getting their ideas out of the academy? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mean, there, I think there are a number of reasons. First, uh, I would say nuance can be a real issue. Um, I don't think algorithms reward nuance. And so to get an audience and to get attention in a very loud media landscape is challenging. And it can be discouraging because people seem to want a quick answer that they can, can get from a quick, short podcast. And people in the academy want to sit down and talk about stuff for a long time and and kind of go over all of the nuances and debate different things. So it's a different register. And even my job as the podcaster was to stand in for a broader audience as I'm talking to scholars and help them translate what they're saying, (laughs) help them use smaller words and talk in ways that like regular people talk and shifting over to fireside. More of my guests have been more able to do that. I'm not as tied to the idea of like how prestigious a scholar is. I'm just like, who's interesting. Even for my show, I think it's going to have a limited audience just because I don't think many people like to kind of just chew on stuff and really dig into the dirt, I think. It can be, I mean, I don't even listen to a lot of shows like my own show. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I get it. I'm not judging people. I like, I understand it. But I also think this, this little niche kind of thing is really, really nourishing and that there, there are people out there who connect with this stuff. And that's why I think shows like this matter. 
there's some good radio shows that do a good job of getting into the weeds a bit. Um, but your most popular podcasts are more chatty. They're not getting into the nitty gritty. They're just sort of like gut reactions and common sense ideas. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard to be popular in that landscape. It is hard to be popular in that landscape, but that doesn't mean you don't have an audience and that there aren't people out there hungry to better understand the things that are pulsing kind of beneath the surface. Which kind of brings me to this question for you over the last few seasons doing Fireside. What's been your favorite conversation? I don't, you know, I mean, this is always like asking who your favorite kid is, which is like an impossible. <laughs> okay, question. let me ask the question differently because I have kids and I get that. You totally <laughs> just brought that home for me. There are conversations I've had that have stayed with me, like nuggets of insight mm-hmm. that somebody will share on a topic that I think I really get or know. And they just kind of throw me with like an aha that makes me see things differently. Have you had conversations like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and putting it that way is helpful because I think it signals that like my own reaction to my show is going to be as personal as any listener's reaction is going to be, which is some episodes are going to personally resonate with me more than others. And one that comes to mind is David Dark. For listeners who may not be familiar, Blair, I think you're talking about that assistant professor of religion and arts at Belmont University in Nashville. He has a new book coming out this fall. We Are What We Normalize, which is a response to the culture of shaming and fear-mongering. I'm personally looking forward to that book because he does something a lot of others don't do. He really unpacks the unspoken reasons why it can be hard to resist norms in our culture that make it okay to harm others. But I'm curious, uh, Blair, after your conversation and reading his work, how would you describe him? Yeah, David Dark is a... Uh, a sort of Christian social critic uh, and a social justice oriented person who wrote a book called Life is Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, Mm. which is a really provocative title. And I think people who are post-religious or people who have bad feelings about religion, it's sort of an offensive title to, to basically say, like, you should be religious. But when you start listening to what he's saying, he's actually talking about things that undergird religion that apply to everybody, which is like, what are our driving values? What matters to us? And what are the stories and cultural products that help us make sense of it? So to him, he's a huge Radiohead fan. And like Radiohead, in a way, could be just as scriptural as the book of Genesis in some ways for him. Blair, let's take a listen to a clip from that conversation with David Dark. You bring up C.S. Lewis in this chapter on questioning religion, a a distinction that he made between people who use art and people who receive art. And you apply this to religion. Yeah, I would say that I am a recipient and a glad beneficiary of the Christian tradition. And of course, there is much that is marketed as Christian that has been terror and has been (laughs) abuse. But when I say Christian tradition, I am referring to the witness of Jesus, the prophets, the early church. And I am never going to be done studying that and striving to be a part of it. It is a witness to mystery, but it is also a mystery in itself. That's where I would differ from folks who might want to say, basic Christianity says, 
I want to say it's way too myriad and weird and way too broad an umbrella to ever think that you could reduce the whole peasant philosopher movement of the early church to this list of tenets or beliefs. So to go to the C.S. Lewis thing, many use scripture, but not everybody receives it. And um, I want to receive it. Um, I don't even want to use Radiohead or Bojack Horseman or Black Mirror to say, you're using Radiohead to say this, or even you're using um, Jacques Derrida to make this point. So he's really looking at like, what are people's personal scriptural canons? Like what movies really move them? What music are they drawn to? And how are those reflective of their values? So he's really trying to get at a deeper core of what religion means, which is not necessarily an organized religion or a traditional religion, but is really looking at what all religions are supposed to be getting at, which is our underlying values, the things we desire, the things we love. Doing that during the first season of the show helped provide a lens for what I wanted to do with the show, which is like explore and kind of give new language for these religious ideas that are still functional in the world, but some of the old religious terms have become like unusable for people. Um, like if you talk about repentance, for example, that's going to have certain connotations to people, but repentance is a really awesome subject to talk about. And you don't have to use that language. You can talk about, you know, forgiveness or about reconciliation or about repair. And so it's really finding out through David Dark's glasses, it really puts things into focus about like, oh, like life is too short to pretend that I'm not religious. As a human being who needs a story and has values and has loves, I am religious when I define religion that way. Mm. What do you recall most from that that you think about when you're walking through your day? Yeah, I see David as sort of this like this spiritually inflected magpie who's sort of like <laughs> flying over the, the the ground and picking up all these bits and pieces and sort of collecting them and taking them uh, to make his own little nest. I like that eclecticism. I like the ways that he sees in pop culture spiritual or religious impulses or value-laden impulses if you don't like the, the words spiritual and religious, mm. um, then it would be a, perhaps human impulses. I related to it so much because even in my most Mormon of days, I would be listening to all kinds of music. Like the Red Hot Chili Peppers could have a song <laughs> that connected with me spiritually in some weird way. But, oh, how can that work? Because they're also sometimes like dancing on stage naked or something like and that's bad right so it's a way to appreciate um and and find meaning and value in all kinds of stuff in the world and not have it be confined to whatever your own religious tradition is sometimes it can be easy to just navel gaze and get stuck on your own culture's sources and ideas and what david dark is inviting us to do is recognize how when we expand our canons, our visions expand as well. And it doesn't necessarily take us away from our tradition or from our beliefs. It can enhance those. Sometimes it does, and hopefully in a good way. But other times it's just an enhancement, and it just gives you a different way to think about things. So he's just open to other people in the ways that the stuff we encounter in the world connect us with other people. Mm. He sounds like someone we need to invite on this show. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. I love David. He's the best. So, Blair, tell me what's coming up in the next season. 
So the next season of Fireside is going to focus on family in particular, and it's going to be called Family Proclamations. And what I did was I went through every kind of different family structure that I could think of and found a guest or a book that talked about it. Within my own religious tradition, there's an idea that there's one right way to be a family, and it's the traditional 1950s Leave it to Beaver nuclear family type thing, um, mom, dad, kids kind of situation. And what I wanted to do was talk about all the ways that other types of families have incredible things to offer and are places where love grows and where people connect. And so I talked to single moms who are single moms by choice who just wanted to raise their own kids. I talked to writers who have an only child. I talked to writers who have a bunch of kids. I talk about transracial adoption. I talk about the immigrant experience and second generation people and some of the difficulties that come up in their own families between them and their parents. I talk about uh, trans kids and, and what we can learn from them, talking about uh, what it means to be asexual, uh, what it means to be single as an adult and not have kids. So just whatever kind of family configurations I could think of, I tried to find the best book about it and interview that author because everybody has some kind of family background or current family situation. And by setting it alongside other types of families, it really sheds new light on our own experiences and opens us up to new possibilities, I think. So that's the next season of Fireside. It'll be called Family Proclamations and it'll start dropping in like January. Blair Hodges, thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Barine. Thank you so much. Blair Hodges is the host, producer, and editor of Fireside with Blair Hodges. For eight years, he hosted the Maxwell Institute podcast at Brigham Young University in Utah. He earned degrees in communications and religious studies and brings them both into his work. Links to his website and podcast can be found in this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. Coming up, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg talks about forgiveness and repairing what we break. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Reflection is baked into lots of organized religions and philosophical traditions, but not all have a mandate to forgive. Every year, Jews around the world observe the High Holy Days. That's a 10-day period known as the Days of Awe. The period starts with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, a time of rejoicing and family gatherings, and it ends with the more somber Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. At that time, it's customary for Jews to review their actions of the past year, apologize for any wrongdoing, and make amends to those they have harmed. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg started thinking a lot about this tradition, the true nature of atonement, That was about six years ago at the height of the Me Too movement. She went on to write on repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world, in which she dives into the personal and public spheres, exploring what harm and forgiveness should look like. And she challenges readers to think about who is empowered to forgive. This week, we revisit an edited portion of our conversation, which originally broadcast in 2022. There's a map Mm -hmm. for addressing forgiveness. Talk to me a little bit about that history. So Moses Maimonides was a 12th century philosopher, physician, Torah scholar, who took a lot of earlier thinking on pretty much everything in Judaism and Jewish law from the Talmud and the Torah and from other earlier texts. Um, and he codified things and, and rearranged things so that it would be more accessible for the layperson to be able to sort of get into the day-to-day work of Jewish life and Jewish law. And in part of his rearranging things, he created what's known as the laws of repentance. And if you study it closely, I believe offers five clear steps for the work of the perpetrator of harm to take responsibility for their errors and to take care of the victim of harm and to show us what the path forward might look like. And there are notes about forgiveness in there and and what the victim might or might not need to do in that work. Uh, But the focus is really on what the harm doer has done and needs to do. Has that philosophy turned up in ways that you see today in our present kind of justice system or even in our broader culture that isn't necessarily just rooted in your tradition? No, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) I, unfortunately, what I see, so, in Judaism, the, the emphasis is on uh, the harm doer cleaning up their mistakes and taking care of the victim. And repentance and forgiveness are really different tracks. And repentance, by the way, is not sitting around feeling bad. 
It's about coming back. The Hebrew word that we use really indicates sort of a return to who you are, who you're supposed to be, your integrity, your best self. And it's a set of actions. It's a set of steps that you're supposed to take. And this repentance and forgiveness are really separate tracks. So you're supposed to forgive or else I can't finish. My repentance work doesn't exist in Judaism. And what we see in the wider culture so often is, oh, forgive and forget, just let it go, right? Turn the other cheek. Um, and there's very little that's asked of the harm doer. Like enough pa- time has passed. We don't even know what to ask of them more often than not, which is what I saw in the, the Me Too conversations and just led to the book. What I'm hearing you say is that there isn't this dynamic uh, dependency between the two. So whether or not you do your repentance work, I'm going to forgive you, or I'm going to do the work of forgiving. Um, similarly, whether or not I am forgiven, I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to engage in this repentance work. What does it look like to do the forgiveness work? Let's take that first. So uh, at first, I want to talk about forgiveness as it's put in our culture for a moment. Um when we put the onus of resolving conflict on the person who was hurt, right? You, why you just forgive them already? We are expecting someone who was already hurt to do additional labor, right? That there's, <laughs> you were hurt. Now you have to go do all of these extra things, even though nobody is taking care of you. Nobody has necessarily made anything up to you. And so it's adding additional injury to someone who is already injured without any necessarily sense of justice or, or attentiveness to their needs. Um, when we uncouple it, we focus on the penitent person's obligations first and foremost to take responsibility for what they have done and to make amends for their actions, right? To attend to the victim's needs and to begin the work of transformation, to become the kind of person that does not do the thing anymore, to stop causing harm, to stop being a harm doer, to basically prevent future victims um, and to start becoming more of an agent of healing in the world. It sounds like it's core that transformation is rooted in a belief that people can change. Yes. Yes. You know, when you say that there's so much focus on the victim, the pressure to forgive, do you think it's fetishized in our culture? Yes. So much. Can you give and, me some examples? Give me some examples of what that looks like from your perspective. Oh, I hear it all the time. People say, oh, enough time has passed. I guess we should give so and so a lucrative uh, TV deal, right? Um, you know, we allow the comebacks, we enable without asking anything of the person. And the, so much onus is put on the person to forgive. One of my favorite examples, and when I say favorite, I mean ironically, is that as the scholar Sharona Pearl noted one day, there's a heavy emphasis in the media of asking. The family members, people who were black, unarmed people who were gunned down or otherwise killed by white policemen 
if they forgive the people who killed their family member without any necessarily statement of even apology by the person who killed their family member. And it's often asked right in the wake of the shooting as the non-indictment from the grand jury is coming in, whenever, and they say, you know, oh, do you forgive this person? And what they're asking is, do you absolve the system? Right? Are you willing to say everything is okay? Are you willing to let go? And, and that is so often what happens, right? When we push forgiveness on people who are already harmed, we are basically reinscribing the existing power structure. Nobody should ever ask a victim to forgive, right? Forgiveness comes from the victim when they are ready at their own time. So if somebody wants to engage in constructive healing, what does that look like? Um, we have a lot of healing to do. Uh, the steps of repentance, maybe I'll start there, are A, owning the harm without qualifications, without justifications about what a nice person you really are and you didn't mean any harm, right? Just, I did this thing. It was not okay. Now you have to own what you did, which means you already have to uh, face the fact that you are not this good, blameless person that you like to think you are, right? There's a lot of that sort of pre-work has to happen. And then so you have to own what you did out loud, ideally publicly, because you're asking for accountability and you're ending the gaslighting, right? The victim finally gets to hear from your mouth that you're taking responsibility. You know, there's no question. You know, we, we stop doubting the victim's uh, words about what happened. Uh, then the perpetrator has to begin to change, right? To start trying to be someone different. Is, is that therapy? Do you call your sponsor? Do you need to educate yourself? What needs to happen? If we're talking about institutional uh, repentance, does the HR need to develop new policies so they don't bury complaints anymore? Do we need to fire the board? Like, Do we need to write up policies about donors and whose money we take and don't take? Um, how do we stop doing the thing again? Then amends, which is done in relationship with the harmed party. We don't make amends at somebody. We ask them what they need. So that requires a relationship. Mm -hmm. It requires, and that's hard for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to show up. And um, sort of again and again and again, after you have caused harm, you have to go through these steps of uh, humility and refacing again and again what you did from different angles. And when you hear from the person you hurt what they need, you may learn something new about what you did or what the impact was, right? And that's important too. And so it's only after the amends, the act of repair, reparations, if you will, that the apology comes. Action first, word second. And then the last step is making a different choice the next time you have the opportunity to do the thing. And there's always a an opportunity to do the thing again. 
but you can naturally and organically, if you have done the work to change, you will make a different choice because you're already different. I was having a conversation with someone about forgiveness and beliefs around this process of healing. Mm-hmm. And uh, his observation was, or point of view, is that the rise in disaffiliation, the absence of having spaces um, in community to impart certain lessons and embody certain values uh, like mercy and mm-hmm. forgiveness has left an entire generation fixated on demanding justice without understanding the rest of it. What do you, what do you think about that? I think it's really interesting that someone who's religious, their critique is there's not enough forgiveness. There's too much ask for justice because as I noted, pushing, you know, asking, pushing a, a victim to forgive is a way to reinscribe existing power structures. I think we need justice. Um, but I think we need to understand what that is. Because, uh, you know, locking somebody in a cage isn't going to help them understand what they did and face it and take responsibility. And it's not going to help them do what they need to do to uh, attend to their victim's healing process. Mm-hmm. And locking somebody in a cage usually doesn't uh, help the victim either. It's usually that process re-traumatizes the victim. So we need to find ways to bring real justice that also facilitate real healing. And then you have to look really carefully at culpability. Are we talking about an institution causing harm, like a you know, house of worship or an entire denomination? And if so, you know, there are maybe a number of bodies that need to move and a number of actors that need to engage. And yes, the institution needs to take responsibility, even if the person who was in charge when the harm happened has gone off and taken another job. I would say that person as an individual has a moral responsibility, but the institution has a responsibility to say, yes, we did not do right by people who trusted us to care for their children who, you know, whatever. And here are the things that are going to change so that that's never happens again. And, you know, and these are, these are the amends and, you know, or what amends do you need? Right. And, and what kind of space are we going to give you so that our apology is going to feel real and genuine and not just a cover your tush kind of a thing? Right. And what kinds of process do the people who are hurt need to feel like their needs and voices are uh, being addressed? Right. Um, and then we can even look at harm at the national level and the steps work there, too. When you describe that, give me an example of when you have seen it work. So I haven't seen any one country do it perfectly. I I think a body as enormous and fraught as an entire nation probably can't do it perfectly. But that doesn't mean they don't have a moral obligation to try. And 
I will note that by the time we're getting to the level of national obligation for repentance, we're probably dealing with atrocities that can never be forgiven. So just because something can never be forgiven does not mean there's not an obligation for repentance work. Okay. Um, But for example, we saw South Africa begin the work of uh, confession, right? The Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in the early mid nineties was a powerful, extraordinary example of the confession step, making profound space for people to tell the truth about what happened in a way that was televised so that nobody could deny like this was as Archbishop Tutu said, like this is apartheid. This is what happened. And nobody can pretend that anything else, you know, except this extreme brutality was what apartheid really is. Um, and part of the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was to formulate a whole system of um, both reparations, right, financial reparations to, to victims, and systemic changes that were meant to uh, really change the game in terms of making future choices, like a tax on those who profited most from apartheid that were then going to benefit those, the other 90% of the country who were not white, the colonized nation, um, in order to bring equity and justice um, and to try to level out those those financial uh, inequalities the problem is it was never implemented. And so South Africa remains the most unequal country in the world. Um, you saw in Germany, uh, they have gone through in fits and starts all of the stages of repentance, but they didn't do them in order because the German grappling with the Holocaust included so many layers of denial and you know, and fear and that there's reparations before there was facing it, before there was acknowledgement and it was very complicated. Um, but I see a lot of potential actually in the land back movement that's happening in the U.S. today. What is the land back movement? So um, one of the two great founding sins of the United States of America is the genocide and land theft of the indigenous people of Turtle Island, of, of this continent. Um, the other, of course, is the enslavement of people of African descent. Um, and over the last number of years, there has been a growing movement to restore land to the native tribes to whom it truly belongs. Little by little, tracts are being restored to their original owners who are the true caretakers of this land. And that is a true amends coupled with if we could do a real profound ownership of what really happened, you know, right now. There was an invitation to the confession stuff, such as it was. And, uh, you know, more than half the country said, no, thank you. We would not like to own what really happened. The moment we say this happened, right, this is real. Systemic racism and the ongoing oppression of Black and Native peoples is not 
something that stopped uh, with the American Revolution. This has been an ongoing uh, atrocity, and we're responsible, right? The confession, you name it, then you have to start to change. And what happens if we uh, begin to be committed to uprooting white supremacy in this country? I hear what you're saying, but I'm also hearing folks who say, you know, we're not land wealthy people. We, we're we just hardworking. We have all kinds of struggles. And now I'm being asked to apologize for things that I didn't do and to do repair work for things I didn't break. How do you, and, and faith ends up coming into that, right? Some people feel that they are being, uh, What's the expression that I've heard a couple times recently? That they're being saddled with the sins of their fathers. How do you reply to that? Uh, if we want to speak about my specific family lineage, we were running from the Cossacks when the worst of these crimes were happening. Right, my family didn't show up in the states until the you know late nineteenth century at the earliest, and as Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, an important rabbi and theologian whose family was all murdered in the Holocaust, and he made it to the States, says, some are guilty, all are responsible. Even though my family was not involved in uh, the architecture of, of these crimes, I receive the benefits of white supremacy every single day. When I go into a hospital, I am treated like a white person and it is not assumed that I don't feel pain. Though, even though doctors make this horrific assumption about black people all the time, right? My 13 year old is already an adult sized and I do not have to give him the same talk that black parents have to give their children, right? The epigenetic trauma that our family carries is nothing like that of Native families that are here today. I am a beneficiary of white supremacy. And as such... I am someone who lives in an unjust world. I am a human being who lives in an unjust world. And that enough should be the catalyst for my obligation to fight for a more just world. What I don't hear you saying is that you feel like a responsibility to repent, but to fight for a more just world. I, I hear a distinction in how you're describing it. And I appreciate those examples. It sounds like what you're not saying is everyone needs to feel a sense of responsibility for what happened, but everyone needs to feel a responsibility for repairing the harm that has happened. Okay. So, so is that accurate or is that, am I, am I putting, am I making that too, am I softening the edges on that too much? So uh, in terms of who has the obligation to do the true repentance work for national harm, I think the answer is, you know, in the cases we've been talking about, the answer is the U.S. government, right? <laughs> who, who committed the harms? Functionally, the government. So who is responsible to do, um, like, really to walk through the steps one by one is the government. Um, and, again, 
in this system, repentance isn't about walking around feeling bad about yourself, right? I think that's a lot of white people when they encounter conversations about anti-racism think they're supposed to feel walk around feeling guilty. And that's not it. It's about seeing that things are not right and that we all have an obligation to be part of the people, you know, writing the table and, and making it someplace that we are all sitting around. Um, and our government has to do uh, certain pieces of this work, but we are all part of this polis and, and so we all have our role. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg is an award-winning author and writer. She serves as the scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. Her latest book on repentance and repair is a National Jewish Book Award winner and an American Library Association's Sophie Brody Honor Book. Her writing has appeared in multiple outlets, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Salon, Time, Religion News Service, and many other publications. That's all for this week's show. This week's producers are Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, Blue Dot Sessions, and Audio Binger for our music. If you're interested in learning more about our guests this week, head over to interfaithradio.org to explore. And while you're there, you could learn more about us, read the show notes, sign up for the newsletter, and explore the archives. You can also download this episode and subscribe to the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices in the pod catcher of your choice. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you the show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. Mm